Section 18 of the Hohenzollerns in America by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Other Impossibilities, Two Heroes and Heroines. What are you reading? I asked the other day of a blue eyed boy of ten curled up among the sofa cushions. He held out the book for me to see. Dauntless Ned among the cannibals, he answered. Is it exciting? I inquired. Not very, said the child in a matter-of-fact tone, but it's not bad. I took the book from him and read aloud at the opened page. In a compact mass the gigantic savages rushed upon our hero, shrieking with rage and brandishing their huge clubs. Ned stood his ground fearlessly, his back to a banana-tree. With a sweep of his cutlass he severed the head of the leading savage from his body, while with a back-stroke of his dirk he stabbed another to the heart. But resistance against such odds was in vain. By sheer weight of numbers Ned was borne to the ground. His arms were then pinioned with stout ropes made of the fibres of the babuda tree. With shrieks of exultation the savages dragged our hero to an opening in the woods where a huge fire was burning, over which was suspended an enormous cauldron of bubbling oil. "'Boil him! Boil him!' yelled the savages, now wrought to the point of frenzy. "'That seems fairly exciting, isn't it?' I asked. "'Oh, he won't get boiled,' said the little boy. "'He's the hero.' so I knew that the child has already taken his first steps in the disillusionment of fiction. Of course he was quite right as to Ned. This wonderful youth, the hero with whom we all begin an acquaintance with books, passes unhurt through a thousand perils. Cannibals, Apache Indians, war, battles, shipwrecks, leave him quite unscathed. At the most, Ned gets a flesh wound which is healed, in exactly one paragraph, by that wonderful drug called a simple. But the most amazing thing about this particular hero, the boy Ned, is the way in which he turns up in all the great battles and leading events of the world. It was Ned, for example, who at the critical moment at Gettysburg turned in his saddle to General Meade and said quietly, "'General, the day is ours.' "'If it is,' answered Meade, as he folded his field-glass, "'you alone, Ned, have saved it.' In the same way Ned was present at the crossing of the Delaware with Washington, thus. "'What do you see, Ned?' said Washington, as they peered from the leading boat into the driving snow. "'Ice,' said Ned. "'My boy,' said the great American general, and a tear froze upon his face as he spoke, you have saved us all. Here is Ned at Runningmead, when King John with his pen in hand was about to sign the Magna Carta. For a moment the king paused irresolute, the uplifted quill in his hand, while his crafty, furtive eyes indicated that he might yet break his plighted faith with the assembled barons. Ned laid his mailed hand upon the parchment. Sign it, he said sternly, or take the consequences. The king signed. Ned, said the Baron de Bowen, as he removed his iron visor from his bronze face, thou hast this day saved all England. 
In the stories of our boyhood in which Ned figured, there was no such thing as a heroine, or practically none. At best, she was brought in as an afterthought. It was announced on page 301 that at the close of Ned's desperate adventures in the West Indies, he married the beautiful daughter of Don Diego, the Spanish governor of Portobello, or else, at the end of the great war with Napoleon, that he married a beautiful and accomplished French girl whose parents had perished in the Revolution. Ned generally married away from home. In fact, his marriages were intended to cement the nations, torn asunder by Ned's military career. But sometimes he returned to his native town, all sunburned, scarred and bronzed from battle. The bronzing effect of being in battle is always noted. He had changed from a boy to a man, that is, from a boy of fifteen to a man of sixteen. In such a case Ned marries in his own home town. It is done after this fashion. But who is this who advances smiling to greet him as he crosses the familiar threshold of the dear old house? Can this tall, beautiful girl be Gwendolen, the child playmate of his boyhood? Well, can it? I ask it of every experienced reader. Can it or can it not? Ned had his day in the boyhood of each of us. We presently passed him by. I am speaking, of course, of those of us who are of maturer years and can look back upon thirty or forty years of fiction reading. Ned flourishes still, I understand, among the children of today. But now he flies in aeroplanes and dives in submarines and gives his invaluable military advice to General Joffre and General Pershing. But with the oncoming of adolescent years, something softer was needed than Ned with his howling cannibals and his fusillade of revolver shots. So the Ned of adventure books was supplanted by the romantic heroine of the Victorian age, and the long-winded immaculate who accompanied her as the hero. I do not know when these two first opened their twin career. Whether Fenimore Cooper or Walter Scott began them, I cannot say. But they had an undisputed run on two continents for half a century. This heroine was a sylph. Her chiefest charm lay in her physical feebleness. She was generally presented to us in some such words as these. Let us now introduce to our readers the fair Madeline of Rokewood, slender and graceful, and of a form so fragile that her frame scarce fitted to fulfill its bodily functions, she appeared rather as one of those ethereal beings of the air who might visit for a brief moment this terrestrial scene than one of its earthly inhabitants. Her large, wondering eyes looked upon the beholder in childlike innocence. Sounds simple, doesn't it? One might expect there was something wrong with the girl's brain but listen to this. The mind of Madeline, elegantly formed by the devoted labors of the venerable Abbe, her tutor, was of a degree of culture rarely found in one so young. Though scarce eighteen summers had flowed over her head at the time when we introduce her to our readers, she was intimately conversant with the French, Italian, Spanish, and Provençal tongues. The abundant pages of history, both ancient and modern, sacred and profane, had been opened for her by her devoted instructor. In music she played with exquisite grace and accuracy upon both the spinet and the harpsichord, 
while her voice, though lacking something in compass, was sweet and melodious to a degree. From such a list of accomplishments, it is clear that Madeline could have matriculated, even at the Harvard Law School, with five minutes' preparation. Is it any wonder that there was a wild rush for Madeline? In fact, right after the opening description of the heroine, there follows an ominous sentence such as this. It was this exquisite being, whose person Lord Rip de Viperous, a man whose reputation had shamed even the most licentious court of the age, and had led to his banishment from the presence of the king, had sworn to get within his power. Personally, I don't blame Lord Rip a particle. It must have been very rough on him to have been banished from the presence of the king, enough to inflame a man to do anything. With two such characters in the story, the scene was set, and the plot and adventures followed as a matter of course. Lord Rip de Viperous pursued the heroine, but at every step he is frustrated. He decoys Madeline to a ruined tower at midnight, her innocence being such, and the gaps left in her education by the abbe being so wide, that she is unaware of the danger of ruined towers after 10.30 p.m. In fact, tempted by the exquisite clarity and fullness of the moon, which magnificent orb at this season spread its widest effulgence over all nature, she accepts the invitation of her would-be betrayer to gather upon the battlements of the ruined keep the strawberries which grew there in wild profusion. But at the critical moment Lord de Viperous is balked. At the very instant when he is about to seize her in his arms, Madeline turns upon him and says in such icy tones, "'Titled villain that you are, unhand me!' that the man is cowed. He slinks down the ruined stairway, cowed. And at every later turn, at each renewed attempt, Madeline cows him in like fashion. Moreover, while Lord de Viperous is being thus cowed by Madeline the heroine, he is also being dogged by the hero." This counterpart of Madeline, who shared her popularity for fifty years, can best be described as the long-winded immaculate hero. Entirely blameless in his morals, and utterly virtuous in his conduct, he possessed at least one means of defending himself. He could make speeches. This he did on all occasions. With these speeches he dogged Lord de Viperous. Here is the style of them. "'My lord,' said Markham. Incidentally, let it be explained that this particular brand of hero was always known by his surname, and his surname was always Markham. "'My lord, the sentiments that you express and the demeanour which you have evinced are so greatly at variance with the title that you bear and the lineage of which you spring, that no authority that you can exercise and no threats that you are able to command shall deter me from expressing that for which, however poor and inadequate my powers of speech, all these of whom and for what I am what I am, shall answer to it for the integrity of that, which, whether or not, is at least as it is. My lord, I have done, or shall I speak more plainly still? Is it to be wondered that after this harangue, Lord Rip sank into a chair, a hideous convulsion upon his face, murmuring, It is enough. But successful as they are as hero and heroine, Markham and Madeline presently passed off the scene. 
Where they went to I do not know. Perhaps Markham got elected in the legislature of Massachusetts. At any rate, they disappeared from fiction. There followed in place of Madeline the athletic sunburned heroine with the tennis racket. She was generally called Kate Middleton or some such plain, straightforward designation. She wore strong walking boots and leather leggings. She ate beefsteak. She shot with a rifle. For a while this boots-and-beef heroine, of the middle nineties, made a tremendous hit. She climbed crags in the Rockies. She threw steers in Colorado with a lariat. She came out strong in sea scenes and shipwrecks and on sinking steamers, where she cowed the trembling stewards and dogged the mutinous sailors in the same fashion that Madeline used to cow and dog Lord Rip de Viperus. With the boots-and-beef heroine went as her running-mate the out-of-doors man, whose face had been tanned and whose muscles had been hardened into tempered steel in wild rides over the pampas of Patagonia, and who had learned every art and craft of savage life by living among the wild hoodoos of the Himalayas. This air-and-grass man, as he may be called, is generally supposed to write the story. He was I all through and he had an irritating modesty in speaking of his own prowess. Instead of saying straight out that he was the strongest and bravest man in the world, he implied it indirectly on every page. Here, for example, is a typical scene in which I and Kate figure in a desperate adventure in the Rocky Mountains pursued by Indians. We are about to descend on a single cord from the summit of a lofty crag, our sole chance of escape, and a frightfully small chance at that, from the roving band of Apaches. With my eye I measured the fearsome descent below us. "'Hold fast to the line, Miss Middleton,' I said, as I set my foot against a projecting rock. Please note that the air-and-grass hero in these stories always calls the heroine, Miss Middleton, right up to the very end. The noble girl seized the knotted end of the buckskin line. "'All right, Mr. Smith,' she said with quiet confidence. I braced myself for the effort. My muscles, like tempered steel, responded to the strain. I lowered a hundred fathoms of the line. I could already hear the voice of Kate far down the cliff. "'Don't let go the line, Miss Middleton,' I called. Here was an excellent piece of advice." The girl's clear voice called up to me. "'All right, Mr. Smith,' she called. "'I won't.' Of course they landed safely at the foot of the cliff, after the manner of all heroes and heroines. And here it is that Kate in her turn comes out strong, at the evening encampment, frying bacon over a blazing fire of pine branches, while the firelight illuminates her leather leggings and her rough but picturesque costume." The circumstances might seem a little daring and improper, but the reader knows that it is all right, because the hero and heroine always call one another Miss Middleton and Mr. Smith. Not till right at the end, when they are just getting back again to the confines of civilization, do they depart from this. Here is the scene that happens. The hero and heroine are on the platform of the wayside depot where they are to part. Kate to return to the luxurious home of her aunt, Mrs. Vander Kuyper of New York, 
and the heir and grassman to start for the pampas of Patagonia to hunt the hoopoo. The heir and grassman is about to say good-bye. Then, Kate, I said, as I held the noble girl's gloved hand in mine a moment. She looked me in the face with the full, frank, fearless gaze of a sister. Yes, she answered. Kate, I repeated, do you know what I was thinking of when I held the line while you were halfway down the cliff? No, she murmured, while a flush suffused her cheek. I was thinking, Kate, I said, that if the rope broke, I should be very sorry. Edward! she exclaimed. I clasped her in my arms. Shall I make a confession? said Kate, looking up timidly half an hour later, as I tenderly unclasped the noble girl from my encircling arms. I was thinking the same thing, too. So Kate and Edward had their day, and then, as Tennyson says, they passed, or as less cultivated people put it, they were passed up in the air. As the years went by, they failed to please. Kate was a great improvement upon Madeline, but she wouldn't do. The truth was, if one may state it openly, Kate wasn't tough enough. In fact, she wasn't tough at all. She turned out to be in reality just as proper and just as virtuous as Madeline. So, too, with the air and grass hero. For all of his tempered muscles and his lariat and his Winchester rifle, he was presently exposed as a fraud. He was just as long-winded and just as immaculate as the Victorian hero that he displaced. What the public really wants and has always wanted in its books is wickedness. Fiction is recognized in its infancy as being a work of the devil. So the popular novel, despairing of real wickedness among the cannibals, and in the ruined tower at midnight, and on the open air of the prairies, shifted its scenes again. It came indoors. It came back to the city. And it gave us a new crop of heroes and heroines, and the scenes and settings with which the fiction of today has replaced the heroes and heroines of yesterday. The lure of the city is its theme. It pursues its course to the music of the ukulele in the strident racket of the midnight cabaret. Here moved the Harvard graduate in his dinner jacket, drunk at one in the morning. Here is the hard face of big business scowling at its desk. And here the glittering heroine of the hour, in her dress of shimmering sequins, making such tepid creatures as Madeline and Kate look like the small change out of a twenty-five cent shin plaster. End of section 18